If ever we did love thee, Lord, I pray it is now. Amen. You may be seated. It's really quite amazing that the entire Word of God can be put on a little device so that we all have it at our fingertips. And I know we, we all get a little nervous when we get new translations, but I'm thinking of one new translation, the book of Revelations, that we should pray that all our names are written in the Lamb's app of life. What do you think? Does that... Does it? <laughs> Mine comes up, and I'm sure you have the same thing. It has all the versions, so I'm going to add that one to it. All right, open to Romans chapter 7 this morning. I'm going to read some of the verses for you here. As I looked over the notes this morning, you know, as you know, my, my schedule is I write on Friday mornings, and I don't finish the, the points I'm trying to make. I leave it for Saturday morning in case what I wrote on Friday morning no longer looks good to me on Saturday morning. But of course, as my friend Theo said one time, <laughs> but then you get to Sunday morning, whether, it's, whether they're good or not, it's too late, just go with it. So um, actually, I was reading through the notes this morning, I was thinking maybe... I should read more for context, but I'm going to have to try to work that in for you uh, as we go. So I'm going to read the first six verses. Your notes tell you it's the first four. I'm going to read the first six verses this morning. I think it will give us greater context. And so Paul writes in his continuing treatise on salvation to the Roman church of the first century, Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law, so that she's no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. When we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Our Father, in Jesus' name I pray that you would... Be with us this morning in this, the reading and proclamation of your holy word, that the saints would be ever prepared in their hearts to hear from you this morning, O Lord, and that your servant would serve in a way that honors you and edifies them, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you have not been so fortunate to go through the whole of this series with us, and you are visiting this morning, or if this is the first time you've ever heard Romans chapter 7 read to you, 
then you would probably think, well, isn't that wonderful? The Apostle Paul is taking this moment to teach us about marriage. But the Apostle Paul has nothing of the sort in mind. He is not teaching about marriage because he thinks you already know all about it. So he uses it, as he's used other things in the epistle, as an illustration about salvation and about our, quote, marriage to another or our marriage to Christ. So let's look into this. Verse 1, he says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? Now, Paul has just spent the better part of three chapters. In fact, you could argue that he spent the, the, the first six chapters teaching about the believer's relationship to Christ, our union with Christ. We talked about this. We've labored over it. There are several metaphors or analogies given by, by Jesus himself and by Paul about this blessed union with Christ that the saints enjoy. We are one with Christ, he said in that wonderful prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane in John chapter 17. I and the Father are one and you are one with me. In John 15, he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. The branches have no life apart from the vine. They draw their life from the vine. He spoke of husbands and wives as being bound together. Um, and then he said, but I don't speak of husbands and wives. I speak of your relationship of, between Christ and the church. He talked about us being stones in a spiritual edifice of, of which he is the chief cornerstone that holds it all together. And all of these different analogies come in as to our union with Christ. And I, I'm telling you this morning, he has not left us without a, a reference to this subject. Our union with Christ is what he's talking about this morning. And so what we see here in the passage is not an abrupt change. From that, from that one subject to another, but rather a very useful illustration to describe our relationship with Jesus Christ as believers. It's been observed that Paul is now teaching on a particular aspect of the Christian life, that is marriage, and that for the moment at least he's pivoting from the essential Christian doctrine to an essential Christian application in life. I urge you this morning to follow his argument with me to see that such a pivot in his thinking is not in any way taking place. And so if we're careful in our reading, and if we do not divide the teaching artificially, we'll see that Paul has not left his teaching on salvation for a practical treatise on marriage. And I would urge you when I say don't divide the teaching artificially that you recognize that the the chapter and verse designations are artificial. They're added to the Bible. We could have gone right from chapter 6 into chapter 7 without the neat little convenient designation that we are, um, for purposes of convenience, uh, entering a new aspect of the, of the argument he's making. But he hasn't left his teaching on salvation. Rather, he's chosen marriage as a useful and some would say ingenious illustration of our expired relationship to the law and our new relationship to Christ. And this is not the only place in Scripture where he makes that kind of comparison. So let's begin where he begins with the words, do you not know? The phrase, do you not know, is a device he's used to simplify a new subject by comparing it 
to a presumably well-known subject. When, when Paul says, do you not know, he's saying, don't we all agree on this? In other words, the apostle's not interested to turn his treatise on salvation to a treatise on marriage. Rather, he's introducing marriage as an example of the binding nature of our position in Christ. And he's done this very thing several times in this epistle. When he turned to teach on sin, he used the the illustration of slavery, if you remember. He began with the same language. From chapter 6 we read, Do you not know? that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey. He wanted to illustrate our death and resurrection, our rebirth in Christ, and he used the illustration of believer's baptism. Also in chapter 6, where he wrote, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Whenever he uses the phrase, Do you not know? It's his way of referring to what he believes in his time is common knowledge among the saints. Apparently, it was the apostles' opinion that the saints of Rome did not need a discussion on the uh, the rules of marriage or on the institution of slavery or on the Sacrament of baptism, he assumes they already have a basic understanding of those things, and he can use them as an illustration to demonstrate something else. So he's introducing a subject that's well known. The question is rhetorical when he says, or do you not know? He knows that you know. It's as if he's saying, of course you know, or surely we can all agree. Surely we know that the one a slave obeys is that slave's master. His obedience is a sure sign of his position with regard to his personal allegiance. Surely we all know that baptism signifies burial and resurrection. The practice is a beautiful, real-life representation of those very things. Baptism is really one of the wonderful illustrations of the new birth that we have. And as Baptists, we act it out. And so surely he believed that because his readers knew what their submission to baptism signifies in the flesh, it would provide an indelible picture in their minds of the reality of their own personal rebirth coming up out of the water, right? I know it sticks with me when he says it. So illustrations of this sort are a useful tool. They teach us about spiritual reality. But they're only useful if the details of them are understood in the first place. If we've lost an understanding of what marriage really is or what slavery really means, then the point doesn't come across. Now, Jesus was well known for using illustrations. He's used a lot of parables, as you know. I think of one in particular. He answered and said to them, we read from Matthew 16, when it is evening, you say, it'll be fair weather for the sky is red. Now, we all know that, right? How do they say it? Red sky in the morning, sailor. Yes, red sky in the morning, sailor take warning. <laughs> that, I looked that up. It actually precedes Christ. <laughs> it's a very old saying. But he said, when it's evening, you say it'll be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it'll be foul weather today for the sky is red and threatening. And then he calls them hypocrites. Now, they know that. That's right, they know that, but they took no time to study what was more important, the signs of the times. The Messiah is here, and you've missed it. 
The sky was red and threatening, and here I am. You know how to discern the face of the sky, he said, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. And he didn't think it was important that he explain what he meant. He just put it right out there. Jesus admonishes his hearers who know so much about common things and have little care for eternal things. So I think we can all agree to the apostles' intent here. And so as regards to the epistle, Paul was not concerned to teach on the subject of baptism. Neither is he concerned to teach on the subject of slavery. And so I hope we can all see that in this case also, the subject the apostle brings up is to illustrate for us another point entirely. It is not marriage per se that he's interested in. It is our union with Christ. Let's drive that point home this morning. It's the new nature that has emerged out of the death of the old nature. It is a new relationship that has emerged out of the expiration of the old relationship. And of course, marriage is a useful illustration of this very thing. Now, in order that we may rightly situate our thinking with regard to this new section of the epistle, of the epistle rather, it's best for us to become acquainted with the meaning, the meaning of the essential terms of the passage. I'm concerned with three terms in particular this morning. The first word is brethren. He calls the people at Rome brethren. The second term I'm concerned with is the term law. And the third is dominion. So let's just look into these terms for one moment, situate ourselves with this, and see if we can't see the apostle's point that he's making here. It could be a knee-jerk reaction to believe that with regard to the law, the apostles was speaking to the Jews or Jewish Christians in the church at Rome. However, it seems to me that if he was to suddenly turn to the Jews only and to refer to them as brethren, excluding the Gentile Christians, that his whole argument would be far less effective. And to emphasize the point, I'll appeal again to the context. To whom is the epistle written in the first place? Is it written to the Jews who have become saints of Rome? We have our answer in the Apostles' introduction. We read from chapter 1. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. For the illustration to have the desired effect and to take an advantageous path toward unfolding the doctrine of our union with Christ, it must appeal to every believer in the church and not just to the Jews only. That's my position. I'll also point out that on those occasions where Paul refers to the Jews only, he adds a descriptive phrase. He does it in this epistle later on. In chapter 9, he says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, but in that context, he doesn't mean my, my Gentile brethren, because he adds, my countrymen according to the flesh. He adds that epithet there to explain what he means specifically about the brethren in that context, which he doesn't do here. So I'm making the argument that brethren means all the Christians in the Church of Rome. In verse 4 of today's text, he does the same thing. He says, therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be married 
to another. It's inconceivable to me that he would switch in a mere three chapters, talking to the same group of people, calling them brethren, that he would switch to the Jews, to all of them. And I bring these points up because as you look through commentaries throughout the ages, these are controversial areas um, of discussion. It's inconceivable that the term brethren in this context, only three verses removed, could be restricted to one party only and not to the whole of the body of Christ. And so brethren refers to all the brothers and sisters of the church and not to the Jews only. Do you follow? Now the second term is the word law, which is always a troublesome term in Scripture. We may readily assume that it refers to the law of Moses only. I'll contend with you today that that's not the case. If it were the case, then again the apostle's argument would be diminished and his illustration becomes less effective to teach on salvation and our union with Christ. Calvin even notes this. In his commentaries, Calvin writes, the word law is not mentioned here in every part in the same sense. For in one place it means bond of marriage, in another the authority of the husband over his wife, And in another, it means the law of Moses. So it means a number of things. Paul says law, and he assumes the context will unravel the meaning for us. So I'm saying that law, in this context, means the universal law that men live under in their particular uh, governments that they're under at the time. So it refers to any universal law of the land that any person in the church would understand as being under the authority of. He develops this much more in chapter 13 of this epistle. Friends, no citizen of our country would be able to claim that the laws of our state and federal governments are not binding upon us. Whether or not they agree with the law of Moses, they are still binding upon us. And the apostle will cover this in detail, as I said in chapter 13. And the citizens or the subjects of the Rome of Paul's day would also be under the dominion of Roman civil law. Just as the, the priests at the trial of Christ had to appeal to their Roman governor for permission to crucify Jesus. They had no right under the law to uh, sentence him to uh, capital punishment. And neither did they ever have the right to use crucifixion um, as the uh, form of, of execution. They had to appeal to their Roman governor for that. And also take note that the Lord was accused of crimes against the state with regard to taxes and regard to saying there's a greater king than Caesar, right? He was accused of civil crimes and he was tried in a civil court and he was crucified under that court. So it seems to me that Paul is not introducing a new use of the word law here. It's been used throughout the New Testament as a reference to the universal laws of men. Now, having said all that, if we've already come to the conclusion that brethren means Jews only, we're far more likely to assume that the word law in the context refers to the Mosaic law. So if we make one error, in my opinion, an error, we're bound to make the next one. And I'm trying to overcome that because I think the context unveils the real truth of his teaching here. This would not be the first place, even this, in this epistle, where Paul refers to law as universal law and not Mosaic law. He's already spoken of the believer's relationship to the law in chapter 2 when he wrote this, For when Gentiles who do not have the law, 
of Moses, by nature do the things in the law, these, although having the law, are a law to themselves. He goes on to say that the Gentiles show that the work of the law is written in their hearts. So brethren refers to all Christian brethren. Law refers to universal concepts of laws of human society. And you'll find often that the ancient laws and codes, uh, ethical codes of different empires throughout history, the Code of Hammurabi that precedes our Ten Commandments, are very similar. They don't speak of God as a jealous one God that won't be represented by idols, but they speak of adultery, they condemn murder and stealing and all the things that our codes do. So these are essential universal laws of society. So um, brethren refers to all Christian brethren, law refers to universal concepts of laws, and dominion becomes important for us as well because dominion refers to whose authority you are under. Now, it's a simple thing to see that as long as a person lives, the law of the land in which he lives is binding upon him. Nobody sues a dead man, I don't think. I have lawyers in here. I'm afraid to look at them right now. I, I, I have an idea that uh, maybe some people do sue dead people. But surely it's a simple thing to see that as long as a person lives, the law of the land in which he lives is binding upon him, right? I mean, they can't do much to you. That, I, I hate to bring it up, but that's why these shooters that go out there and shoot everybody kill themselves. All they want is the fame. They don't want to deal with the consequences, and they think they've escaped it. That's the, that's the interesting spiritual caveat to that whole scenario. But, and so the law has authority over us. The law has authority over us until we die, but only... While we're alive, does it have authority over us? And that's the apostle's point. That's what he means by dominion. No one sues a dead man. If you wish to impose the force of law upon a person, it must be imposed while the man still lives. Unless you're John Wycliffe. Do you remember the story of John Wycliffe? He was one of the early English reformers, circa 18... uh, I'm sorry, circa 13... um, 60 or 50 or in that era... And he translated the word of God into English, one of the first translations into English, later on by William Tyndale, which we talk about at our Reformation Fair. But the morning star of the Reformation, John Wycliffe, wrote the Bible, translated it into English. People were reading it. It was read all around Europe. John Huss learned in Bohemia what Wycliffe taught him um, from his home in England. And um, Wycliffe went to... uh, a very peaceful death in his old age. And later on, some of these recalcitrant priests of that day thought he got off too easy, so they dug up his bones, they burned them, and threw them in a river. So they punished him even after he was dead. But for the most part, they have to punish us while we're alive. I digress, I know, but it came to my mind. And so dominion represents the binding Authority of law, it's only binding so long as the constituents of a particular country are still alive. And we have to ingrain that in our minds to understand his teaching this morning. In the instance of a person's death, he's released from any requirement of the law. You don't have to obey the law once you're dead. And now to the illustration. Verse 2. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. All right? 
But if the husband dies, she's released from the law of her husband. If the husband lived, lives, she's under his dominion. If the husband dies, she's released and can marry another. Now, it seems to me that the verse is self-explanatory. Marriage under law is binding unto death. The death of either of the partners, by the way. And then it can have no dominion over the spouse. And so the death of the partner frees the spouse to marry another, but only death can do that. Only death can provide that kind of freedom. And if it weren't so, the the whole illustration falls apart, friends. So I'm proceeding on the assumption that Gentiles were as informed on the binding nature of law as were the Jews. Did the Gentiles believe this also, we could ask, right? They didn't have the law of Moses, and it's my contention that that's not what he's referring to with the word law, because I believe that in the, um, in the Roman Empire at that time, they had very similar views to marriage that we have today. Now, if you're going to read, as I've been doing, or I've always done, about great men like Julius Caesar and Mark Antony and uh, Cleopatra and Octavian, you will see that they marry and intermarry and they do things for political reasons. But generally speaking, the populace of Rome understood marriage in the same way that the Jew did. And I want to demonstrate that to you this morning from some extra-biblical evidence. So I'm not so certain that today's man on the American streets has the same view of marriage that the man on Roman streets had in the first century. In other words, Paul assumes we all understand marriage and he can go off and give an illustration. I'm not so certain we all understand it that well. We as believers respect God's purposes in marriage. The man on the street may not be the least, least bit interested in God's view of marriage. Would you say that's a reasonable conclusion? Now, that doesn't take away from what Paul wrote here. It's just, you know, I've always asked the question, what do you think was in the prophets' minds when they wrote a prophecy? Did they know when, when, uh, when Micah wrote several centuries before Christ that he would be born in in Bethlehem Ephrathah, right? Did he know that it would be hundreds of years later? You have to wonder about those things, all right? Did Isaiah know that when he wrote about the Christ coming, he bore our, um, you know, by his stripes we are healed and all those things? Did he know it would be 750 years ahead? So you got to wonder if Paul thought 2,000 years from when he wrote, right, as far back to him as when Abraham wrote, I wonder if he, if he thought we would still have all these views understood in our minds and we'd still be reading his his word and struggling through the deep meaning of it so i'm not going to say that paul foresaw the future and he looked to uh the america of 2022 but if he did what would he see about our understanding of marriage almost two of anything can get married today so i'm not certain (laughs) that we don't need a little primer on some of these things So we as believers respect God's purposes in marriage, but the man on the street, not so much, right? And not until he abrogates, right, or goes against one or more of the laws and is brought to account is he apprised that some of God's initial responsibility in marriage have been incorporated into our civil laws. And they're still on the books. But all this to say that though Paul believed in his time that everyone knew the basics of law regarding the marriage bond, whether Jew or Gentile, it may not be so in our day. Notice that Paul speaks of a woman being under the dominion of her husband. There's an idea that's fallen on bad times. 
<laughs> right? Now, we know that that's not relegated to some little corner of the New Testament and we draw it out, but it's all throughout, it's all throughout the Scripture. First, First Peter 3, Ephesians 5, um, 1 Corinthians 11, uh, Colossians 3 talks about wives submit to your own husbands under the dominion of their husbands. There's an idea that the man on the street today is really not aware of. Do you, th- do you think that's a fair statement? Um, it's surely an aspect of human society that's been displaced by certain feministic ideals that were not present in first century Rome. Now, it's interesting, when I was reading the commentaries of Martin Lloyd-Jones, he pointed out feminism, a product of modernism, has really clouded the real meaning of marriage because some of these things are no longer present. Imagine what he'd think. He died in 1981. Imagine what he'd think if he came today and and noticed that feminism is the least of our problems as a society in understanding marriage. We don't even know the genders of the people involved in the marriages anymore. We're too confused about these things. So I can hardly believe the apostle anticipated all of these changes, although when you read Romans 1, he may well have. (laughs) The man... uh, leaves behind the natural use for the women. They burn in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful. He goes on and on. Not that that didn't happen of old, but um, the place that it's come today is, is just really far more confusing, isn't it? So let me remind the church today that marriage hasn't changed. It's an institution by God. Can I say something to you very plain this morning? There's no such thing as homosexual marriage. It's something, but it's not marriage. Marriage is its own thing. I just want to make sure we understand that, okay? It's an institution designed by God for certain purposes of his own. Number one, for the comfort of man. It was not good for man to be alone, so he made him a helpmeet suitable to him. For the comfort of man. But that's not really God's initial purpose in marriage. That's his concession to man. It was for purposes of a righteous progeny. Be fruitful and multiply. This concept of fruitfulness is um, important for us to understand because that's the application of our union with Christ, to bear fruit to God, right? Which the man outside of Christ cannot bear. As Malachi said, why did he call the husband and wife one? Because he wanted godly offspring, he says. That's the point. It's the point of marriage was to subdue the earth, to bring it under the dominion of men. And so there's no other event that can cancel the binding nature of marriage other than death. You know, when we, when we make a vow, though we take them kind of lightly these days, God holds us to the vows we've made. Think of all the vows you've broke. Broken. You know, every one of the great confessions of faith of the great denominations all have a section on lawful oaths and vows. Lawful oaths and vows. It's important. If you don't believe me, read the section of the book of Judges on the sacrifice of Jephthah. Remember him? For surely you know that the two have become one. I should have said one flesh. Two have become one flesh. This is still the case today. You and your spouse are one in the eyes of God. And if you're one in the eyes of God, then that means you're really one. (laughs) 
It doesn't matter what you are in our eyes. It really matters what you are in God's eyes, and you are one with your spouse. For surely you know that two have become one. That's still the case today. It will always be the case. And even in cases of divorce, which Jesus said God allowed due to the hardness of men's hearts, that remarriage is still a difficult discussion. And he talked about that. If the woman marries before the husband dies, she commits adultery. The marriage vows binding till death do us part. Remember those words? Now, insofar as the man of the world in Paul's time is concerned, I'm going to attempt to show from antiquity that fidelity in marriage was a universal law of all human society. Henry Sheldon, you know him? Henry Sheldon uh, published his work, uh, History of the Christian Church, in 1895. It's a really good six-volume set. It's a wonderful read through scripture. And as I was writing this, I, real, I remembered a quotation for him about fidelity in marriage in the Roman era. And this is what he wrote. Divorces were comparatively unknown. And he meant comparatively to his time. And he wrote in 1895, where for my money, they were still comparatively unknown compared to today. Divorces were comparatively unknown. And then he mentions Plutarch one of the early historians of the Roman era. Plutarch says there was no case of divorce for 230 years. I want to tell you, these guys did exaggerate. We can't always take them at their word. But, but it's amazing that that's something that he thought to write to show the, uh, the righteousness of the Roman people. No case of divorce for 230 years. And another writer has given the much longer period of 500 years. And if you're just thinking, well, these are, these are pagans. They, they're just trying to make themselves look good. Tertullian, the great Christian historian theologian, gave what he says makes the interval nearly 600 years without a divorce. So whether or not they're exaggerating, they still obviously value the marriage bond. So whether they're exaggerating or even grossly exaggerating, like consider, maybe Tertullian was half wrong. That means it was for 300 years. If he's even grossly exaggerating, we can see that Christian and pagan alike, the binding nature of marriage vows have been part of the culture of man since the earliest centuries of civilization itself. God created marriage in the garden before men fell into sin. It brings with it part of that beauty and part of that, well, part of that perfection. Marriage is forever or forever until one partner dies. Otherwise, chapter 7 of Romans doesn't make, doesn't have the same impact for us. Everyone knows this in Paul's world, even though we choose to forget such things for our own convenience in our world. And so the illustration of being under the, under the authority of another unto death is a powerful one. Some might say it's a perfect analogy. It's not, but it's almost a perfect analogy. No illustration is perfect. Don't force too much on an illustration. And so verse 3, that brings us to verse 3 where Paul writes, So then if, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she'll be called an adulteress. Right? We saw that played out in John chapter 8. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another. Again, 
it seems self-explanatory to me. However, due to the weakness of the flesh, as Paul says, I would like to briefly address the divorce objection here. He's not talking about divorce, but that comes up in this discussion. Um, I would say to you that not all divorces are created equal, but in the case that children have been born, if any of you are involved in divorces where children have been been, been born to you, the divorcees will find that they're still bound unto death to the spouse, even though he or she has moved on. Very sadly, that is the case. Formerly married couples will always be responsible to their children. The courts will hold them so. Schooling, vaccinations, religion, custody, visitation will always be areas of their lives where they will still be bound to each other despite the introduction of new, that is, adulterous partners. So even if you're legally divorced and you're married and moved on but you have children, you're still bound to that old spouse for all the things that pertain to those children. Even as a minister, I've been involved in these kinds of situations. It doesn't go away. Marriage really is forever until one partner dies, and then you're free. But don't kill them. I know it came into your mind. That's why I said it. Even in the case of divorce, God's binding requirement of the marriage bond will be in effect. Only death dissolves it. Children are, as Malachi writes, godly offspring. Isn't that what we seek, Christian marriage? I see so many godly offspring that were born in this church. I know my three boys love the Lord and are great apologists of the Christian faith. I know the same of Bill and Diane's children, all of them. I know the same of Brenda's children. It's a wonderful thing to see Marge's children. Marge's children and grandchildren are right over there. And so we know all about that. But, and I say Marge and Brian, I'm sorry, I, I forgot to say, but I just happened to look at Margie and Brian's like, Brian's like, what am I, chopped liver? <laughs> sorry, Brian. The children of the house of Hebda. Um, Marge is of the house of Carver, which goes back to Governor Carver on the Mayflower, I should say. So I gave you some kudos there. No, godly offspring, that's the point. The gener- handing down the Christian faith through the generations. The Listenberger, faith, Listenberger family, several generations, right? We see the same here all throughout. I could go through. I see Seth. I see the, uh, J- Jared sitting here. All are, have taken the faith of their parents. They are godly offspring. You have fulfilled God's multi-generational purpose for the church in marriage. So marriage, like salvation, is for bearing fruit. To God. Remember he said be fruitful and multiply? That goes back to Genesis chapter 1. And then Paul writes, bear fruit to holiness to the saints here in the first century Rome. And so our marriage to our spouse is to produce the fruit of godly offspring and our marriage to Christ is to produce fruit to holiness. Amen? Now, I've spent almost the whole of the hour, teaching on the subject that Paul thought didn't need any teaching. I thought it did. I don't disagree with Paul about Rome, though. But I'm suggesting maybe he doesn't know about woke America. The apostle's illustration is that either a man is married to the law or he's married to Christ. What a wonderful illustration. 
And both of these unions are binding unto death. And I would say that the man who does not regard God's law regarding personal righteousness will find in the end that God considers him bound, whether he considers himself bound or not. Imagine saying, I want nothing to do with God. I don't believe in any of that stuff. You're a bunch of thou shalt not Bible thumpers trying to wreck my good time. Once you get before God, none of that's going to matter. That's not going to be a good defense. Well, I didn't believe in I didn't believe in you. So what's your problem? I mean, you're going to find you're still bound. And so I would say that the man who does not regard God's law regarding personal righteousness will find in the end that God considers him bound for, because God regards his own law. Just like the woman in the illustration who marries while she's yet legally bound to another. For a believer to be free from the law, or as he writes elsewhere, from the curse of the law. I want to talk about the curse of the law today. Either he or the law must die if he's to be free from the law, or what, we, or what Paul called elsewhere the curse of the law. The curse of the law is the fact that it is God's will for human righteousness, but it has no power to save you. It only has power to condemn you. That's the curse of the law. The Pharisees missed it. They could never obey it so well that it would deliver them. It was always only by faith in Christ. In this case, it's the man, the believer, who has died. The law is yet alive. And it's been forever controversial that Paul switches from the death of the law to the death of the spouse. Why? Paul will not say that the law is dead. It lives. It will be established forever. Paul will not say that the law is dead, but the spiritual death of the man imputed to him by faith in Christ's atoning death frees him from the obligations of the law. Friends, the law is still there. It's still blessed of God. It is still a path to righteousness, but it cannot save. It can only condemn, and that's the curse of the law. So I'd add at this juncture that the law lives on. It will always be a guide to righteousness, but over the believer, it does not have dominion. You're not under the law, friends. You're under grace. The law only has the power to condemn, and grace only has the power to commend you to Christ. You're forgiven. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Paul wrote Romans 6.14. We read just a couple of weeks ago. The believer has died and been born again. We have to remember, friends, that the new birth is about a death. You know, these institutions, these denominations, these independent so-called churches that will not deal with the sin problem really have no right to speak about grace. Friends, you're not just saved, you're saved from something. You're not just born again, you had to die to be born again. There's a death. There's a crucifixion of the old man. The believer has died and been born again. In our new life, we have a new master. And so we bear fruit to God. We're dead to the curse, and the curse is that the law has no power to redeem us. We were under this yoke that in the end would break us. The law, though a righteous guide, or as Paul wrote to the Galatians, a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ is yet an impotent Savior. The law is an impotent Savior. It's a good guide to Christ, but it cannot save you apart from the Christ he leads you to. 
The law can point us to righteousness, but it cannot provide it. The law can show us the way of righteousness, but it cannot get us there. Our old husband allowed for death, but he could not provide life. Our old husband, the law that we've now died to, provides death and condemnation, but he cannot provide life. That impotence in the law is its inherent curse. Now, friends, Jesus lived as one under the law. And I don't want to get into the thorny doctrine about this. He didn't have to, but in order to fulfill all righteousness, he did. He didn't have to let Moses baptize him, but in order to fill all righteousness, he did, right? What's that? Oh, Moses. <laughs> I meant to say John the Baptist. Thank you. Um, as every man was under the law, so he submitted himself. If I listened to the recording later and heard that, I would have been mad. So I'm glad you corrected me so I had a chance to fix it. As every man was under the law, so Jesus submitted himself. Had he not submitted to the law, he could have in no way been an acceptable sacrifice for our sins. Jesus came to the temple. He didn't have to pay the temple tax. He paid it anyway. Remember he told them the sons are free? So go out to the pond and catch a fish and the money will be in the fish. Um, until we're free from the law through death, we cannot bear fruit to God. Fruit to God only comes through our marriage to Christ. The unbeliever has no fruit to God. Christ in his humanity went to the cross bound to the law, but he rose from the dead free from it. He was not under it. What's that? And so how does this affect us? Okay, Christ was under the law. He died. The law could not hold him because he had committed no sin. He rose again from the dead. But what of us? We read from the previous chapter, if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. The fact of the old life is that it died with Christ, friends. And the greatness of the gospel that Paul's trying to bring out is you're dead to sin. So don't consider yourself the plaything of the devil anymore. Reckon yourself alive to God. In other words, consider yourself what you are. Recognize the freedom you've been given. You're not under sin. You're not under death. And you're not going to die. For if, we, if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. The fact of the old life is that it died with Christ. The application of the new life is that you may reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. You have that freedom. The unbeliever cannot reckon himself dead to sin. It is still his master. Reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so how are we made free from the law? Paul tells us. Verses 5 and 6. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we've been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. For the, you, you know what he said elsewhere, the letter of the law kills, but the spirit gives life. 
The unbeliever is only capable of bearing fruit to death. And you were like them. And I was like them before we were saved. You were once children of disobedience, just like the others, Paul wrote in this epistle. The unbeliever can only bear fruit to death. And only the believer has been rendered by faith to bear fruit to holiness. So stop bearing. And as I've said, we've already seen some fruit. It would not be improper, friends, to say that faith which offers life to our spirit is also the crucifier of our flesh. Once we believe in Christ, something old dies in us and frees us from its dominion, you see. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace, and grace does not condemn So in a sense, friends, faith caused death. But praise God, it also delivers us to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. How do we know that? Because we only need faith until we see him. Right? For now we walk by faith and not by sight. But when we get to heaven, we don't need the faith anymore. We can look him in the eye, face to face. When we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. There's another great change to happen. And I think I showed you a couple of weeks ago that we do not die. We pass from death to life. Right? So let me close with this from the book of Revelation. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. She has borne fruit to holiness. And to her it was, a, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen. And what is that fine linen? What are those garments that we'll wear in the presence of God? Clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Amen. Father, we praise you for this, your holy word, and for the preservation of it down through the ages. Through the apostles and the saints and the reformers, O Lord, and that you brought it even to this small pulpit this day for our edification, and we are ever grateful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.